What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. I am, as always, very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. Here at the end of all things, it would seem like the best time to be discussing the remainder back half of Lord of the Rings Return of the King. We are going to stay in Middle-earth as we were last week, and we are going to continue to talk about the book slash the movie with pretty much a, a more bigger focus on the book, I would say, than the movie. And we've done it. We've reread Lord of the Rings, the whole trilogy. This is our final episode. We have a giveaway to do. Um, I couldn't be more excited to be here with this Midnight Myth episode. It This has just been such an amazing and fun project for us to engage when typically we talk movies and TV shows, but being able to like get our teeth into some literature and literature that is both relevant to movie and TVs um, has been such a fantastic journey. It's almost as if I have returned back home fundamentally changed in some way that is irreconcilable with the way that home is. And I am looking to calmer, whiter, greener shores in order for me to heal from this long journey that I have been through. I just don't know how that's relevant, Derek. <laughs> Whatever you're saying here, I just don't know what that means to what we're going to talk about tonight. But uh... Well, you know, one of the themes of this the second half of this book is healing and you know healing is a major component characters are healers lands need to be healed and it's something that we're going to be discussing as we talk about this book and i think i'd like to leave room at the end just kind of wrap up we just reread three major pieces of literature that have shaped pop culture they have shaped fantasy, they have shaped gaming. The impact of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings really can't be overstated. So I think after we talk about the second half of The Return of the King, depending on time, I'd like to maybe connect some dots in a big picture, Midnight Mythian way, if you're cool with that. Absolutely. I would love to do that. But um, before we roll up our sleeves and get to work, 
Laurel, do your thing. Well, hey, uh, it's a weird time to be alive right now, and we are all seeking human connection more than ever. So if you wanted to reach out to us for any reason to suggest an episode for the future or to give us any feedback or just to say hi, please do. We're on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, and we're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we would love to hear from you uh, about just whatever is on your mind. Um, if you want to get more from the Midnight Myth podcast, you can always head over to our website, midnightmyth.com for additional content. There are blogs there, uh, and there's also links to our Patreon and our merch store if you were able to support us monetarily, which we would appreciate with uh, the fullness of our hearts. Uh, if you don't have dollars to spend, but you want to support us and you want to help us reach more people, the best thing that you can do for the podcast is to leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or wherever you listen. Uh, just to say a few words about why you like the podcast and drop us five stars would mean the world to us. Um, but at this moment, we have a very important piece of business to take care of here at the top of the episode. And we want to thank you for your patience because we know it's been a few weeks since we announced this giveaway uh, and it's taken us a little while to get through the book, but we are giving away... Uh, a set of Funko Pops, uh, Frodo and Sam, and a Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit set to one lucky listener. Uh, and we asked you to engage with us on Twitter in order to enter. So we have a number of entries. Uh, we have them on little pieces of paper inside of a hat because we love drawing things from hats here on the Midnight Myth Podcast. So if you're listening at, listening at home, listen for your Twitter handle. Laurel is drawing the name out of the hat. And yes, it is a Philadelphia Phillies hat. And who is the lucky winner of our giveaway? Oh my gosh, we have at Dave underscore J underscore Wood. That's our friend Dave from Not For The Dinner Table. Yay! Well done, congrats. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. So Dave, uh, amazing, congratulations. We're going to reach out to you for an address and we will get that in the mail for you as soon as humanly possible, uh, wearing our face masks and protective gear to the post office. Uh, we can't wait to uh, for that to get to you. Yay! That is super exciting congrats it was a lot of fun putting together this giveaway thank you to everyone who participated who retweeted the tweet um congrats again to dave and now let's talk some lord of the rings yeah let's do it i guess we'll do a brief recap of the second half of the book of the return of the king um i'm gonna keep it super brief because we have a lot of material to get through like our other lord of the rings discussions this is not going to be exhaustive of everything one could say about Return of the King. But the second half of the book, it features Frodo and Sam, and they're reuniting in Mordor and their journey to destroy the One Ring of Power. They Ultimately, Frodo gets the ring to the precipice of Mount Doom and cannot destroy it. He gets into a wrestling match with Gollum. Gollum bites off his finger, grabs the ring and falls to his death, destroying Sauron and scattering his minions. Then we see the King uh, Aragorn being crowned. And then from there on in, the hobbits journey back home. They make it back to the Shire to see ruffians having taken control of it. They outs the ruffians, who turns out to be led by Saruman. Grimmer Wormtongue kills Saruman. And then Frodo and Bilbo go to the Grey Havens and book. 
Nice. Well done. Super high level, super quick. There is so much analysis and theme to get to uh, in this podcast, but what an incredible journey. Uh, And what a surprise, too, when reading it, that the destruction of the ring comes really rather quickly uh, in the second half of The Return of the King. It is by no means the climax or the like final battle of the book. There is a lot more uh, and a lot more character stuff to wrestle through before you get to the end, before you get to the end of all things. It's pretty wonderful. I really agree. I, I said this last week. I'm going to echo it this week. This is easily my favorite book. I, I gobbled up every single word. We only read half of the book for last week's episode. We literally read the rest of it in days. Yeah, yeah. Because we just couldn't stop because we loved it so much. So we've been doing nothing but working our normal daily, you know, self-isolated routine. And then we've been just reading this ravenously. Uh, there is, there's a lot to get to. I suggest that we kind of tackle it a little chronologically through the yeah. events. Um, starting with one of my first sort of meditations in the very beginning where Frodo has been um, stung by Shelob, Sam is making his way through the tower. Um, a thought that I had, and I wanted to get your take on it, most of these orcs engage in a civil war, and this clears the way for Sam to make his way to the tower and to find Frodo and for them to reunite. It gives them the ability to disguise themselves as orcs because there's so many slain orcs. And I really kind of, that struck me as odd and I really was meditating on it. The orcs, it starts with them killing themselves. The orcs just are just destroying each other. And I wanted to know, did that strike you as odd too? Do you have any thoughts on it? We're going to spend a lot of time discussing the hobbits and our heroes and what they mean and represent. But so much of Lord of the Rings is about the doubling and the mirroring and the dark shadows. If our heroes are united by bonds of fellowship and love, what unites our orcs? And why is it they seem so quick to literally kill each other? Um, So, yeah, a great question here at the top. Um, It didn't necessarily surprise me or strike me as odd because in the two towers, uh, we did get an inkling that orcs were not necessarily unified as a party. Um, the orcs who spirit away Merry and Pippin are constantly having uh, fights between themselves, deciding whether or not to just you know, rob the hobbits and kill them and run away with the goods or actually deliver them uh, as the bounty to the Dark Lord. And we've got, uh, you know, we have orcs who are pledged to Saruman, orcs who are pledged to Sauron. We have independent orcs who are, uh, you know, not really uh, feeling loyalty to anything. And that to me is is at the core of uh, why there is this kind of conflict between the orcs. They are naturally opportunists. They feel like they have this sort of relationship of uh, a, a transactional relationship with the Lord that they serve. They'll get a certain amount of power and freedom by serving, uh, you know, this dark and powerful Lord, but they're not necessarily uh, genuinely devoted to that Lord, which is a huge contrast to what you see in characters who are part of the fellowship or characters in Rohan or Gondor. There is a deep devotion uh, between the the rulers and the ruled uh, that forms this real social contract. So that's why it didn't necessarily strike me as odd. It seemed like 
the natural um, outgrowth of these characters who are constantly in it for themselves and what they can get out of every relationship to go, uh, you know, head to head against each other in a civil war, not fight for a common goal. Yeah, it's almost like as soon as they see Frodo's treasure, they're constantly scheming and the treasure being Sting and the Mithril. They're constantly scheming a way for them to kind of one up each other. Who's going to get credit for this? Who's going to take the downfall? And Tolkien goes at length to describe that they are two different uh, sort of tribes of orcs that are manning the tower. And so each one has their own leader that they follow. And I think you hit the nail on the head. There is a through line in all of the books of a argument over what is power. Where does power reside and how is power formed? And through the Dark Lord and through the orcs, we see a certain meditation on power and that power is derived from brute force. People are individualistic. Orcs, I should say, are individualistic and they are made to follow for either a transactional, like you said, I'll serve Sauron because I'll get something back out of it or out of just sheer fear and threat of violence. I'm going to follow. Otherwise I'll get reported to the Nazgul who will then kill me or my you know, direct superior will whip me out of fear of pain, out of fear of threat of force and violence. And seeing these characters, these orcs, just devour each other into a minor skirmish that clears the way for Sam is a way, I think, to say, in comparison to what we just left with, everybody choosing to follow Aragorn because they believe in Aragorn, because Aragorn's hands are the hands of a healer, because Aragorn has proven himself in battle, because Aragorn uh, inspires everyone that comes across as a good and just and noble leader, because Aragorn has the lineage of a king that's been passed down for thousands of years. For all of these reasons that Aragorn should be followed, we now see the direct opposite of, hey, rule by brute force will mean that you might get desperate tribes to work together for a certain period, but they're all just trying to knife each other as soon as they can. Yeah, you can never count on true loyalty. And in this instance, that that knifing each other becomes literal to the point where they are literally stabbing each other, which makes it possible for Sam to reunite with Frodo and gives them a way to get to Mount Doom. Yeah. You know, the very nature of the way Sauron runs and structures his power, which is violence, force, intimidation, manipulation, makes it possible for Frodo to escape because the orcs kill each other. Yeah. Because there's no way Sam could make his way through with uh, you know two companies of orcs in a tower, but because they all kill each other, he has the ability to save Frodo, which ultimately leads to Sauron's destruction. So in a way, we see a meditation on the nature of power And that's one of the things that grabbed me right from the start that I didn't really articulate. I wrote down, orcs kill each other, meditate in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Why do they kill each other? Hmm, What's that mean? You know, in a certain level, my first reaction was, is that convenient? Well, no, it's not. It's actually symbolic to what Mordor is. It, It grounds the power of Mordor as this authoritarian, violent, selfish regime. Yeah, and then it will go on to see acts of valor and loyalty and devotion win the day as we move on. You know, they're not going to fight many more big foes at this point before the destruction of the ring. It's all going to be about continuing through uh, hardship and tenacity 
and the two of them coming together and proving that uh, devotion can can prove heroic. Yep, I totally agree. And in that, we see one of the best bits in the whole book, I think, when Sam has the ring. Oh my God, it's so good. And Sam puts the ring on, and he has this moment where he envisions the world with Samwise as master of the ring and master of Middle Earth. Yeah, he sees himself as the great hero of the age, uh, and he imagines making the entire realm into a flourishing garden and you know, causing everyone to till the fields for him and being the great ruler of this worldwide garden. Uh, and that's kind of an amazing vision for him. But then a moment later, uh, and Tolkien says, with his hobbit sense, uh, he remembers that he's Sam, and he's not meant to control a worldwide garden. He's not meant to make other people do work uh, for him. He's meant to work with his hands and tend his own garden. Uh, and the love of Frodo t- keeps him safe from that temptation, too. So it's this relationship and this uh, memory that, no, 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 he's, he's simple folk, and he's the kind of person who who does his own work, keeps his own country to steal something from Tom Bombadil in our uh, first episode here. Uh, he's he's going to be the one to do the work for himself rather than to make people bow before him. And he gives the ring up. He, he gives the ring up willingly. He gives it right back to Frodo. He doesn't really hesitate too much. There is a moment when Frodo oh, gets yeah. a little nasty there too. Yeah. And we start to see, this is the first time that we see the power of the ring really taking hold over Frodo in the books. In the movies, we've kind of already seen it a little bit. It's already started to happen in the two towers. Um, He like shuns Sam and sends him away in the movies, all things that don't happen in the books, but he's just like, give me the ring and gets all nasty when Sam has it. And then he apologizes and says, I'm sorry, the ring has this hold over me. And if you were to carry it, it'd have this hold over you but we start to see that it's going to be very hard for Frodo to destroy it, which we then, flashing forward, he doesn't. So the hobbits continue their journey toward Mount Doom uh, on this impossible task to destroy the Ring of Power, Uh, and Frodo is becoming deeply, deeply drawn into the power of the Ring, and he is falling into despair. He uh, explains that he can no longer remember smells or tastes he's naked in the dark and we get this sense of incredible despair from him but sam pushes through uh sam at times almost loses hope almost loses sight of the goal uh but there's a beautiful scene when they're sort of lying down to rest and frodo falls asleep and sam is starting to feel really sad and hopeless and he looks up into the sky and he sees one single white star and i think tolkien says it smote his heart Uh, and he once again feels that hope, Uh, this sense of him looking up at the sky and remembering that there is something much bigger than him. It reminds me of in The Two Towers when he was uh, talking about the the stories of the Silmarils and these stars and remembering that he's part of the same story that's been told uh, for generations. He's just one more uh, character coming in and out of that story. And that renews that vigor within him that he continues to push Frodo forward with. Yeah. Let's flash forward to the big moment here. Yeah, let's do it. Because them walking through the waste of Mordor is great. Um, And Tolkien really emphasizes how little hope they have, their desperation, they're starving, they're thirsty. It's really a miserable slog, but they get there. They're on the precipice. And Tolkien writes this 
almost 100% from Sam's point of view. Uh, Gollum sneak attacks them. Frodo gets to the, the, the precipice. He's ready to toss the ring aside and says no and puts the ring on. And there's a moment where perspective shifts and we get perspective from Sauron who realizes what a fool he's been that the uh, counterattack by Gondor on the Black Gate was just to distract Sauron. And Sauron tries to deploy as many forces as he can to uh, Mount Doom because he realizes the ring is there and it's the one place where the ring could be destroyed. And Frodo refuses to cast it into the fire. It's not until Gollum... Um, accidentally, by trying to steal the ring from Frodo, rips off his finger, and the ring falls into Mount Doom and is destroyed with Gollum. What do you think this means? Now, I know there's a lot of literature that's written about this moment. I know that Tolkien himself wrote letters and said things about this moment. But barring all of that aside... Let's hold all of that because I know we've dived into it. When you reread it and you read Frodo putting that ring on instead of destroying it, how did it make you feel and what do you think of it, Laurel? Oh, uh, just the moment of Frodo saying no. Um, it's it's hard to step back from it and, and um, not bring in any biases because I've seen the movie so many times, because I've read the books before. Uh, and I knew it was coming, so I was looking for it in Frodo. I was looking for the seeds of it. Um, but it it really is tragic. It really is sad. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to find other words for it than it's really sad. Uh, you know, this is a quest narrative in the tradition of great medieval quest narratives that usually uh, are hopeful and end with uh, pretty tied up knots like the the knight you know captures the thing he's been looking for or uh saves the maiden or uh wins the war or slays the dragon uh it usually doesn't end with this kind of really just despairing denouement yeah that's an interesting point because if we contrast frodo and sam's journey to mary and pippins and we talked about this in last week's episode mary and pippins show up they become knights. They become the, the very thing the situation needs them to be. And they rise to the challenge, and both in Merry and helping to defeat the Lich King, and Pippin and helping to save Famir. They become revered. They are looked on as princes by their fellow um, you know, friends and Gondorians, etc. And in here, it would at first glance seem that. Frodo and Sam were doing that. They were showing up. They were figuring out a way to get there. But once we get there, Frodo fails to destroy the ring. And I think the way I kind of reconcile that is that Frodo's journey was to get the ring as far as he could before he fails. And that was always his journey. Just take it as far as you can bear it for as long as you can bear it until you can either destroy it or it claims your life. And he got it as far as he could take it. The fissures of the ring were, and the cracks in Frodo, pardon me, the fissures in Frodo's character are kind of laid out in this journey. And we start to see the power of the ring completely taking hold of him to the point where it 100% takes hold of him. And 
Sam has to actually carry him. He couldn't actually do it because Sam must put Frodo on his back and walk him to the point where now you have to take the journey to the lava and almost cast it into the fire. And in that respect, Frodo was successful. And then on a similar vein, when we look at the orcs who are killing themselves, there's something about this ring and the nature of the power that it represents means it's literally impossible for the bearer to destroy it. They will never be able to take it to Mount Doom and throw it into the fire. Yeah, just by being the bearer of it, just by virtue of being the bearer means you cannot be the destroyer. That makes sense, yeah. It's literally an impossibility. No one who bears the ring could suffer it to be destroyed because the power is so corruptive. Even though Frodo is remarkably resilient to it, even though... Um, you know, Bilbo is able to give it up. Sam is able to give it up. Certain characters can pass it on. Um, others are going to be completely consumed by it, like Gollum or Boromir, for example. Frodo, the best he could ever do is walk it up to the line where he cannot cross, and no one else could have gotten it there, right? Only Frodo could have gotten it there. And as it happens, this was enough. Because the evil of the ring ultimately attracted its destroyer, which was Gollum. Yeah. Gollum's obsession with the ring and his willing to kill, lie, cheat, and steal to possess it is the very thing that ends up making sure that it gets destroyed. And how many times throughout the series have we heard uh, someone, Gandalf or, uh, or Sam or Frodo, echoing Gandalf and saying, Gollum still has a part to play. That's why we've shown him mercy this entire time. That's why we've looked in the eyes of this most wretched of characters and not dealt him a, a blow and not you know cast him aside. We have trusted him and we have allowed him to continue to walk upon this earth because he still has a part to play and we can't be the ones to make him meet his ends. And this is the part that he was destined to play. Uh, I think that's interesting the way you've put that, that the bearer, it's impossible for the bearer to be the destroyer. And when we think about how this journey began, Nobody ever really thought they were going to destroy the ring, except maybe Sam. He's the only one who speaks optimistically throughout the book about going back to the Shire and the story that they'll write about us someday. Nobody else really in their hearts believes uh, that Frodo's going to be able to do this. They will do everything in their power to make sure that he can, that he has the opportunity, but nobody really believes it. And that impossible task, uh, you know, even us as readers... We still believe in it as we're reading, but it's here in these final moments that we start to, to doubt. We start to falter because if Frodo can't do it, no one can. Um, but then, of course, Gollum does. Uh, and this is Tolkien's you know, masterful display of eucatastrophe, the term that he coined. Um, it literally means a sudden turn of events at the end of a story, which ensures that the protagonist does not meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom. So it's not unlike a deus ex machina, but it's not exactly the same thing. Instead of the hands of the gods literally descending to magically resolve the conflict, eucatastrophe unfolds naturally from the course of the in-universe events with a fundamentally optimistic viewpoint. 
I think that's another thing we've returned to a whole lot. There is optimism baked into the threads of this entire universe through the way that leadership works, through the way that people uh, relate to one another when they come across each other on you know, a battle-scarred field, uh, to the way that trust is placed into chance meetings. Uh, optimism is, is a huge, huge part of the like, emotional landscape of, uh, of Middle Earth. Uh, but Gollum showing up to unintentionally destroy the ring where Frodo failed, the eagles showing up to arrive Frodo and Sam, uh, to save Frodo and Sam from certain death on the slopes of Mount Doom, these are eucatastrophe. Uh, and in one of Tolkien's letters, he says, quote, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, which I argued is the highest function of fairy stories to produce, end quote. Did you cry at the end of this book? Because I sure did. Oh yeah, I totally yeah. cried. <laughs> I cried a whole lot. But <laughs> it was it's did. it's from intense joy. This sense that, like, yeah, they should have failed. They should have completely failed and been swallowed up by lava, but they weren't because this fairy story was able to produce a like logical, um, you know, maybe not rational, but like deeply logical to the in-universe. Um, the themes that Tolkien has been building and weaving for us, it, it perfectly encapsulates it. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I think in it wraps up the, the metaphor about power, the differences between those who seek power um, versus those who innately have it because they have an inner virtue. And the ring represents those who seek power. And those who seek power for their own ends and for their own means are always going to fundamentally be corrupted. And at the end of the day, the rings allure is too powerful for even a character as good as Frodo Baggins. And I mean, virtuous as Frodo Baggins from someone who stays his friend's hand, Sam from killing Gollum ends up being the exact thing that needs to happen for the ring to be destroyed. You know, because if it were up to Sam, Gollum would have been, Killed. They would have killed him on the road. They would have bound him up and left him to starve to death or be uh, eaten alive by prey, by, I'm sorry, predators. Because of Frodo's inner virtue, he is able to take the ring where it needs to be, and that is where it needs to be destroyed. But it can't be him. No one can destroy the ring. It's indestroyable by the bearer's hands. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So after the destruction, we make our way to the celebration on the fields of Cormallon, which includes the crowning of Aragorn eventually, uh, and the praising of the hobbits and the ring bearers for all of the, that they have contributed to Middle-earth and to the destruction of Sauron. Uh, it's 
a celebratory sequence. It's pretty incredible. Um, Frodo and Sam are asked to, to be clad in the orc wear that they were wearing when they destroyed the ring, uh, as well as some of the heraldry of Gondor, which I think is a really interesting choice. Um, and Aragorn eventually plants a sapling from the fields of battle and replaces uh, the old dead white tree, becoming the new king who is raising a new kingdom that is symbolized by the growth of this tree, which I think harps on those same themes we've been discussing this entire time of growth and cultivation. Yeah, I think it's also significant that Faramir offers the crown of Gondor to Aragorn and he refuses it. He asks for Frodo to present the crown to Gandalf and then to have Gandalf crown him. While this may seem like a just empty symbolic gesture, who places the crown upon a king is a central political question that monarchies have asked for a long period of time. That's true. For example, in our own history, the Frankish medieval king Charlemagne, Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, starting a conversation over what is and where does authority reside from? Does it come from the clergy, from the Pope itself, who's a channel of God? Or is it secular in nature? Does it come from the king? It is also of import to note that Napoleon, one claimed to be the emperor of France, had a pope present him with a crown and he crowned himself, saying that the authority is secular in nature, but I recognize religion's role in helping me become the emperor. And in this, we see the ring bearer, not the steward of Gondor to present the crown to the king and Gandalf as this sort of herald of this other spiritual divine world that Gandalf comes from. Magic itself places the crown upon Aragorn's head, saying that Aragorn is now connected to this magical universe from Gandalf, where Gandalf is from. And um, so it doesn't come from just Faramir seceding it to Aragorn, it then comes from the ring bearer, e.g. from Sauron, from the darkness, the person that most responsible for defeating the darkness, Frodo, to Gandalf, then to Aragorn. I also think it signifies Aragorn wanting to serve not just Gondor, not just the men of Gondor, but the entire realm. Uh, not necessarily saying I have dominion over the entire realm, but you, as one of the little folk, Frodo, will you know, be present and be part of this ritual to crown me because I want to serve you as much as I want to serve Faramir and the men who reside within the city. And I want to be connected to this greater power that is represented by Gandalf, uh, which includes memory and uh, you know, reaching back to the history of Middle-earth as I try to forge a new path. I think it's very symbolic and interesting how he, he crafts that ritual. Yep, and I think you're absolutely right being able to cultivate the land within a balance of harmony and civilization to be fruitful for the land to give people that what they need to sustain civilization is one of the major themes of this book, of all of the books. And Aragorn replanting the tree of Gondor as the king ushers in the fourth age, as it is now the new New Year celebration for the people of Gondor and the establishment of central authority in Gondor, which all authority will then emanate from, is really what we're getting at here. Yeah, wonderful. 
so after the celebrations finally come to a close and everybody realizes it's time to go home, uh, we have the adventurers really retrace their steps. And I love this segment. I love that we go back through uh, the forest of Fangorn. We go back to Isengard, which has become a garden, and we check in with Treebeard. So the place that was once, you know, scoured to its very, you know, waste becomes once again uh, flourishing. Uh, we go back to Edoras and we see the triumphant funeral for Theoden, which reminds me of the wild hunt of Odin. It's just so epic. Uh, and we go back through Rivendell and finally make our way back to the Shire as the, the fellowship once again splits apart and goes their separate ways. Uh, and this is a significant moment. Uh, the, the next segment, the scouring of the Shire, is of course left out of the films. So this was something that I had really forgotten a lot of the details of. I knew that it happened, but most of it felt kind of new to me because I hadn't read it in several years. And uh, it's a really significant section for these characters because I think it shows us how far Sam, Frodo, Mary, and Pippin have come. I totally agree. They have to finally um, meet a challenge without any aid save for themselves and what they have learned. They come back to the Shire to find the doors closed, there are sheriffs and sheriff's men with feathers in their caps and rules that are everywhere. And we find that the food is being hoarded by the, the big ruffians, men, the, yeah. these ruffians, and people don't have as much peace and plenty. We find that the hobbit holes have been replaced with houses. There are mills that are over-cultivating the land. Trees have been cut down. And the rest of the hobbits have pretty much acquiesced to this authority. Sam at one point interacts with another hobbit who he recognizes. And it's like, essentially, he's like, dude, what the hell? Like, what's going on here? Why are we all acting this way? I know you. I knew you less than a year ago. And this other hobbit's like, none of us like this. Some of us do. There are a few spies and people trying to benefit from us. But the rest of us are just going along because... We really don't have much of a choice. The rules became the rules. There's a connecting theme about how characters interact with rules, regulations, and laws in The Hobbit. And when these rules, regulations, or laws are no longer just and no longer serving the good, and times when characters ignore these rules, regulations, and laws... A few examples in the two towers, uh, we have both Faamir and Aemir letting the travelers they meet on the road, Frodo and Aragorn respectively, who are by the laws of their land supposed to be brought before their lords, Denethor and uh, Theoden. And we see Merry and uh, Eowyn defying the laws of Theoden, saying that they can't go to battle, going to battle. And we see Pippin encouraging um, guards of the Citadel to abandon their post to save Faramir's life, even though that's against the rules there. And now we see the hobbits confronted with decrees written on paper, hammered to the side of buildings, dictating the movements of people, the flow of goods and money. And what do they do? They tear them right down. They revolt. And immediately tear them down. There is a thread through this that says when we know rules and laws and customs to be unjust, it is our duty to fight against those and to try to change them. And throughout all of these books, getting to this point, the Hobbit's being like, 
Listen, we stared at the eye of Sauron. I have had, I've broke bread with Theoden and Denethor. I'm a knight of the city of Minas Tirith. Gandalf has died and been reborn, and I have traveled with him. Yeah. I'm not intimidated by this piece of paper and these ruffians with clubs. And they immediately organize the hobbits against these ruffians. Um, things that I, I just, I love this part of the book so much. I love it because it shows where all of these four different hobbits are. So it shows both uh, Merry and Pippin as the true hobbit knights they have become. It shows Sam as the leader and Sam as someone who is able to discuss and talk about everything with everyone. It shows Sam as the capable hobbit who will become the mayor. Yeah, he's a politician in this. And it shows Frodo in his incredible mercy. Frodo won't like wield a weapon. He won't brandish a weapon. And he wants to make sure that whatever they do, hobbits don't die. Yeah, so even the hobbits who have gone over to the side of the ruffians, either out of genuine belief that they're, you know, the right people to follow or just out of necessity, Frodo wants to pardon. He says no hobbit blood should be spilt at our hands, even those who have switched sides. And so there's this incredible current of forgiveness that is rushing through him that uh, is something that he's definitely learned from being able to forgive even Gollum, uh, to even show mercy to Gollum. But he is bringing that through to, uh, you know, these treacherous figures in his life, people who have betrayed the Shire and betrayed, you know, Hobbit values and culture and says, no, we must forgive them, too. And I think that really shows us what uh, what Frodo has become. And even when they confront the new, quote unquote, big man who turns out to be Saruman and Saruman pretty much says, yeah, Sharky, he pretty much says, yeah, I knew you were coming, so I wanted to ruin the Shire because I'm Saruman and I'm an ass. And that's really what this is all about. You were coming here, so I'm trying to destroy a thing you love because I'm spiteful and resentful and I'm still powerful. Even then, Frodo says, we will not kill you. You're not allowed back in the Shire. And even though you've done this tremendous damage and tremendous harm to the Shire, you were forgiven and free to go. And it is Grimma Wormtongue who finally snaps at his master and takes Saruman's life before he runs away. Well, and that shows us the true power of mercy, too, and how it is often more powerful than striking somebody down, because Saruman gets really ticked off by this act of forgiveness. He wants nothing more than to cause Frodo, this sort of symbol of virtue, to uh, to strike him down, to uh, lash out against him and to seek out his own revenge. But the fact that he doesn't even get that satisfaction uh, it just totally, totally sticks in Saruman's craw. He's like, I'll never forgive you for the fact that you forgave me. And he's even willing to forgive Grimma. I mean, like, Grimma, as far as I know, you've done no wrong to anyone, least of all me. Right. You are free of Saruman. You can stay here. You can stay with us. And then Saruman starts listing all of the evil deeds Grimmer Wormtongue has done at Sauron's behest. And that's enough for Grimmer. He finally snaps and kills his master and runs off. And that is the end of Saruman. That's the end of Saruman. And we can read this as another part of the theme of the corruptive element of power. And that once people start seeking power, e.g. the power of the ring, how it ultimately leads to their own destruction and the destruction of everything they once stood for. Saruman was once a wise and powerful wizard, 
He was a steward of the world like Gandalf and was the leader of the order until he got corrupted by the power of the ring and he brought that corruption everywhere he went. It's important to note that Saruman was encaged in Orthanc and the tower in Isengard and Treebeard let him out because it's not an Ents role to cage things. Ents need everyone to be free. They can't be prison guards. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's good to bring up. That this walking tree was just like, I can't cage life. I'm sorry, life needs to be let free, lets him go. And this is what then uh, causes this mischief. Another example of the untamed forest being dangerous and potentially harmful, letting this villain out of his cage in Orthanc. Then he comes to the Shire and totally over-cultivates, destroys, and consumes, and hoards, and is greedy, and he does it just to spite the hobbits. And even in the end, they get the better of him. Yeah. It is tragic that they come home after this incredible journey. Uh, All they want is to just go back to the Green Dragon and have a pint and then settle in with a pipe and read a book by the fireside in their hobbit holes, and they really can't. Uh, the, the Shire is pretty much destroyed. There are houses that are torn down. People have died. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's really tragic. It's like coming home from war and finding that home is not there anymore. Um, but we have to give it to the hobbits. Once again, they're tenacious and they are loyal and they are devoted. And instead of giving up on their homeland, they try to rebuild it. And that requires the skill sets of all of them. Uh, especially Sam's, because he is now the most famous gardener in the realm. And for the first time, he opens up the box that Galadriel gave to him, and he finds seeds. He finds, uh, you know, a, a seed that could be a new tree. One of the things that devastated him the most was that the party tree was gone uh, when they arrived back in Hobbiton. And while it may not seem like a huge tragedy for a tree to be cut down, that tree represented obviously a lot more than just. Uh, you know, a growth from the ground. That was a community gathering place. That was a place where great memories were forged. That was where Bilbo's birthday party was that set off this entire adventure. And so to not have that anchor in your town has to be really painful, especially for Sam. But he plants a tree with the seed that Galadriel had given to him, and it sprouts magically with incredible speed and becomes a new party tree that people come from miles away to see because there are no other trees like that in the region. Uh, and I, that, that for me, uh, perfectly echoes what Aragorn had done with the sapling from the fields, replanting the tree of Gondor, and really sets up Sam as the mirror for Aragorn, unexpectedly. You wouldn't expect these two characters to be put up side by side with such similar characteristics, but I think time after time, and now more than ever, Tolkien has been telling us that this is the true hero of our story. This is the great hero of our story, Samwise freaking Gamgee. You know, the hobbit who uh, nobody expected much of, who was really just a servant for Frodo, ended up being the one who pushed him to the very edge, ended up being the one who uh, voluntarily undertook this quest that he didn't have to be a part of, ended up uh, helping to destroy the ring, and will be the one to rebuild the Shire. Uh, I think these two characters in Frodo and Sam definitely could not get by without each other. They both need each other to become the heroes that they are. But as Frodo 
prepares to leave Middle Earth. He prepares to leave this world to Sam. And we know that this world is going to be in good hands with Sam. Because he can grow. He's a gardener. Yeah. He is able to hold the power of the ring and indulge for a moment a fantasy of himself as the most powerful person in the world and is able to say, no, that's not for me. Yeah. And he, in a similar level, is able to help rebuild the Shire, but do it, you know, for Pippin and Mary and Rosie and his children and and do it for Frodo, but never for himself. The one thing that Aragorn and Sam share is a selflessness. And that is one of the best meditations that I have walking out of Return of the King. The best leaders don't think about themselves. They think about others. They think about who they serve. They think about putting others first. What makes Sam a great candidate to inherit Bag End, become the mayor, and become the fire, the, the mayor of Hobbington? And that is that he cares about others more than he cares about himself. That he's not the dashing, brave hero we all expected, but he's the person that when push came to shove, carried the ring bearer to the threshold of Mount Doom, in which the whole thing would not have happened without Sam. And you're right, what makes Sam so special is the fact that he makes these choices. And these choices are always to help others. And who else do you want running your hobbit down if not a selfless, caring, brave, amazing hobbit like Sam. And also someone who appreciates uh, the simple life. I think that Tolkien drives home the importance of that in contrast to the great quests. He says in one of his letters, quote, I think the simple rustic love of Sam and his Rosie, nowhere elaborated, is absolutely essential to the study of his, the chief hero's character, and to the theme of the relation of ordinary life breathing, eating, working, begetting, and quests, sacrifice, causes, and the longing for elves and sheer beauty, end quote. So what Tolkien is saying here is that just as important as taking the ring to the fiery chasm from whence it came is living your life, growing your garden, having your children, loving your family, and being a part of your community. These are all essential to making the world go round and being uh, truly good and virtuous. Uh, And that just warms my heart. I love Sam. I mean, who doesn't love Sam? And I don't think anybody can come away with this without a a deep well in their heart for this character, but it's beautiful. Yeah, as Frodo starts to transcend the mortal world and take his rightful place in the Undying Lands, Someone needs to be left to actually make this a better, freer, and fairer world. And that is first Aragorn as the king, and then Sam as the mayor of Hobbington. And because of that, I tend to read this that Sam is the true MVP of this entire story. He is the true quote-unquote hero. If this were the epic of Gilgamesh, it'd be the epic of Samwise Gamgee. He's the Achilles or the Perseus to me in this story in that he is chosen by fate to go on this harrowing adventure, must learn and grow beyond their means, starting from humble origins, rising to high origins, 
and comes back fundamentally changed, ready to be a better person and take their rightful place among the pantheon of Hobbit heroes. Which is not to say or not to take away from the heroism of any other character, too, because uh, how many times has this text said that we all have a part to play? We're all characters in a greater story. We come and go as our parts decide. Uh, and the fellowship is core to the entire thing. You know, we've seen the incredible growth of characters like Merry and Pippin, but we've also seen the friendship develop between Legolas and Gimli, without whom none of this is possible. Uh, and everyone is an essential cog uh, in this incredible machine, and they're driven by bonds of friendship and love. So saying this is not to take away from anyone's contribution. Even Gollum, of course, is deeply essential. But that's what I walk away with, is that... Uh, if there is one character to aspire to be like in this story, it's Sam. Totally, totally, totally agree. So let's talk a little bit with the remaining time that we have about Frodo at the end of this story. I think there are some interesting things. We've already mentioned that Frodo chooses to no longer wield a sword. He even kind of scoffs at wearing a ceremonial sword at the crowning of Aragorn. He does. Uh, he does eventually do it because Gandalf is just like, hey, it's just a ceremony. And then he doesn't want in the scorching of the, ch the Shire. He doesn't want to spill any Hobbit blood. And then he ultimately gets to the Grey Havens and sails to the Undying Lands. Now, um, Tolkien himself wrote letters about what happens after the story. And in that, Tolkien says that Frodo and Bilbo don't become immortal. They go to the Undying Lands to heal from the evil of the ring until they're ready to pass on to whatever their next life is. They, in a sense, don't become living gods. I want to know your take on this part of this journey. Seeing Frodo transition from just the ring bearer to what he becomes next, what, what would you define his transition? What does he become? And then how can we read the final chapter with him sailing to the Undying Lands? If we take Tolkien at his word in his letters, he doesn't become a god. It's the easiest interpretation. He sails off to the, the heavens and becomes immortal would be the easiest interpretation. But Tolkien says in his mind, that's not what happens. And I want to know what your thoughts are on this, Laurel. Well, I, I agree that not literally, he doesn't literally become a divine being, but uh, symbolically Frodo does sort of transcend the earthly realm. Uh, and he obviously shows us examples of this in, you know, scoffing at these worldly garments, in um, forgiving those who have betrayed him, who have sinned against him, and the hobbits who have, uh, you know, sided with the ruffians in the Battle of Bywater. Um, and he eventually cannot live in the world anymore. Uh, he says to Sam, referring to the Shire, when things are in danger, quote, someone has to give them up, lose them so that others may keep them, end quote. Uh, so he's saying, this place is not for me anymore. I have to move on to what's next. Uh, and frequently he's described as looking like he is, you know, staring at something far off, seeing things that are unseen by other people, certainly a, a relic of the, the damage that the ring has done to him for the years of bearing it. But for me, he does, he does leave, uh, this sort of worldly aspect and he becomes a symbolically divine figure. Uh, his passage to the undying lands with Bilbo 
I mean, that's about us watching him sail off into the sunset and knowing that he's going to a better place, knowing that like he cannot remain in the Shire anymore and he has to go somewhere where he is uh, truly venerated and he is able to become whole again. Uh, he tells Sam that he has to become whole, uh, that Sam has to become whole by living in the world. And that's absolutely true about that character. But for Frodo, that's about um, ascending to the next level. Uh, what it reminds me of, uh, and this is to call out some medieval literature here again, uh, is the Grail Cycle um, of the Arthurian legend in the Vulgate Cycle from, I think, the 13th century in France. Sir Galahad, who is the son of Lancelot, uh, goes with his friends Percival and Bors to the Holy Land and eventually achieves the Holy Grail. And Galahad is the only one who is able to look upon the Grail and see its wonders. Percival can come with him, but Percival is just a little bit too worldly to look into the wonders of the Grail. And so are we as readers. We have no idea what Galahad actually perceives when he looks into the Grail. But afterwards, he is offered the opportunity to go to heaven Angels surround him and Percival bears witness to him being brought to the next plane because he's been so virtuous and so holy as to achieve this incredible thing. That's exactly what's happening to Frodo here for me. I love that. There is a long historical and mythological tradition of mortal people having done such amazing or great deeds in their time in earth that they are able to transcend and make their way to where the gods live or where God lives. Galahad being an example, if you are a medieval Norse um, practicing the religion of the Vikings, if you are successful on the battlefield, you are greeted by Valkyries who take you to Valhalla where you go and you dine with Odin in preparation of Ragnarok. If you are a um, ancient Greek Maybe you're Her Hercules or Heracles and your deeds are so great that you get transcended into the literal sky and become a constellation living with the gods themselves on Mount Olympus. And when Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman imperial monarchy, died, it was said three days after his death that he was seen ascending into the heavens and joining with the other of the ancient Roman gods who are mirror copies in many respects to the Greek Olympians. Yeah. Even, it, you know, we sit here, uh, we're recording this on a Saturday in between Good Friday and Easter, and in the Christian religion, Christ, after three days of dying, gets to be reborn and transcend and make Christ's way to heaven. And in many ways, Frodo's journey is sort of a mirror of that, and it is highly, um, at least in the moral aspect of Frodo, highly Christianized. He's encouraging everyone to turn their cheek. He's encouraging nonviolence. He's preaching tolerance and forgiveness. There is a moment when they're making their way to the Grey Haven where Frodo has a vision of Sam becoming the mayor and of all of Sam's children, and he names them off. None of these things have happened yet, but Frodo gives a prophecy. So he has gained some sort of uh, vision or sight by virtue of what he's gone through. He's also become incredibly physically ill from the journey. His exposure to this ultimate power and the trials and tribulations being stabbed at Weathertop by a Nazgul blade and holding this ring so close to its evil source has left a tremendous toll on his body and one that has not 
fully been purged yet. That will never heal on the wor- in the world. And he has to travel to the magical place of the elves in order to yeah. purge this and to heal. Which is similar to Avalon too. There's just so many examples that we could talk about. And in this, so in the Middle Earthian sense, these other realms, these undying realms, they are part of the world. One could sail there. Much like in the ancient Norse tradition, there's the Yggdrasil and the World Tree, and people could travel to the different realms if you could just make your way far enough, right? So this is a physical place. It's not a transcendent place. But we see these signs of transcendence in Frodo that, to me, read as him breaking through the earthly and into the godly. And if Tolkien writes in his letters that he doesn't actually become a god, that's cool too. Yeah, absolutely. I I get that. He's more like the epic hero who gets to live on. Um, And I love it. I think it's like the most fitting end for a character to hold evil around his neck for as long as he did and to confront that evil and to help bring it about I'm cool with him getting to the Undying Lands, hanging out with the elves. I'm cool with him getting a reward. Um, You know, just something that continues to warm my heart is that in later letters, uh, Tolkien confirmed that Sam, as a ring bearer, eventually does also join Frodo in the Undying Lands. So they are eventually reunited, which uh, is beautiful. And Legolas and Gimli eventually go there together as well. And they're the final members of the Fellowship who make it to the Undying Lands. Uh, So there is continued conjecture about uh, what happens next in this story. But I I do think the story ends exactly where it needs to with Sam returning from the harbor and sitting down at the table with his wife and his child and saying, well, I'm back. Uh, it's the end of the journey. Uh, yeah, I, I, got, I got chills too. I just saw a chill go through Derek um, and I'm getting a little emotional here, but he's come back from the journey. He is fundamentally changed in more ways than we can possibly describe, but he is back and he is going to continue on. He's going to go on. He's going to love his wife. He's going to have more children. He is going to be a competent and compassionate mayor and steward of the Shire. Uh, and he is going to continue to write the story. He's going to continue to write the Red Book of Westmarch. And then he's going to pass it on to his daughter someday so that he can go join Frodo in the Undying Lands. Because our story does not end. We are just players who walk in and out of it but it continues on and we need to celebrate that. All right. I could continue to go on about this all day, but we are fastly approaching the end of the episode. Now that we have reread in 2020, all three Lord of the Rings books, do you have any connecting themes, anything that stood out to you this time reading that you maybe didn't get the first time Or that now, since you're reading it as an adult, compared to when you read it when you were younger, that you might feel differently about. And I leave this as open-ended for you, Laurel, and for everyone listening that's gone on this journey with us. I mean, we have talked a lot about um, a number of themes that uh, connect over and throughout the series. And honestly, we could do this again and again. We could read through these books over and over again and continue podcasting and never talk about the same thing twice. Uh, But some things that really stood out to me were this idea of stewardship and how a good leader has to also be someone who uh, is constantly working to help things grow. Um, The idea of keeping one's own country is really sticking with me now, especially because we started this reread 
before coronavirus was declared a, a worldwide pandemic and before we were, you know, told to stay in our homes. And so it's a really different world than it was when we first started this reread. Um, and Tom Bombadil keeps his own country and self-imposes these limits and does not move beyond them. Uh, Sam is tempted to potentially become a great lord and to control other people to do his bidding for him, but he says, no, I'd rather keep my own country. Uh, it's just something I'm meditating on um, in this time when I have to stay within my own four walls. Yeah, really great point. You know, things that really resonated with me was the the overall meditation of power. Where does it come from? Why does one have power versus another? The differences between the titles, why those titles for people with power do matter, and how people can end up manipulating power. Because ultimately, we're reading a struggle for who rules Middle-earth. Will it be the king, the king of Gondor, or will it be Sauron? And if there's anything we would, I want to ask is, why is it that Sauron shouldn't rule? What is it about Sauron's rule that is so undesirable that people should literally put their mind, body, and soul in harm's way to stop Sauron? And for many, the easy answer to that is Sauron is evil. And yes, that's absolutely true. He is evil. But there is a deeper question beneath that. If Sauron is evil, what makes him evil? After all, we see so little of Sauron, who's not even a real character in his own story. But we see lots of Sauron's agents. And what is it that they represent? They represent darkness. They represent fear. They represent uh, brutalizing the weak. They represent uh, destroying and overconsuming the land. The orcs that he commands are often at each other's throats as much as they are at their enemies' throats. They need to whip and torture and brutalize those that they find to be inferior. And the people that come under Sauron's sway end up doing the same. We see Saruman get corrupted, going from you know living in Orthanc as a wise and great lord and wizard who then suddenly gets corrupted to the point where he is destroying the world, consuming too many trees, breeding his own army, and brutalizing the people of Rohan. And we contrast those to our heroes and why our heroes deserve to be in power. And Aragorn deserves it, one, because it's his birthright. That is important. This is a medieval setting where you get a claim to kingship the characteristics of your family pass through to you. Yeah, nobility right? is hereditary. And his hereditary is to be king, but he is also able to, what first, what does he do first? He leads the rangers. And the rangers, when they are gone fighting the war, that's the first power vacuum that allows the ruffians to come in. Because the rangers aren't there protecting people, how do they do it? By being in the wild, by being healers, by being unseen, they don't do it tyrannically, they don't even ask for thank you, and most people don't even trust them and realize that they're helping, but without them, there's now the ability for the bandits and the ruffians to come in, come in and then take over the Shire and terrorize Bree. And this meditation on power is really where I come back to, and the big takeaway, when we look at what can we learn from Lord of the Rings to apply it to our own world? And there's a ton. And there's a lot of different ways one could answer that question. But scrutinizing those who are in power and trusting those who really want to lead selflessly 
is one of the major takeaways. And we are seeing that currently in 2020, coronavirus pandemic America, we're seeing the selfless leaders versus the selfish. Yeah. And we're seeing the effects and people are literally living and dying because of this. Yeah. So it matters. In other words, it truly, truly matters. Do you hoard the ring of power and use it like Boromir and Denethir would want and then become agents of the Dark Lord? Or do you carry it on your back with a ring bearer and bring them to the chasm and say, go, if you're strong enough, maybe you can destroy the thing? Yeah. To me, it comes down to the difference between uh, dominion, which is a word that is often associated with Sauron and with his followers, that they want dominion uh, versus stewardship uh, versus, you know, leadership. Uh, if you want dominion, which is full and total control over the entire world and everyone under your sway, then you will overconsume. You will coat the world in a darkness. And if you truly want to lead, that means you're not controlling people. You are leading them. They are following you in a way that uh, you're working together. Uh, and so that's where that really comes together for me is is contrasting these ideas of dominion and an exchange and a fellowship. One last question for you, Laurel, before we wrap up. Of course. Where does Lord of the Rings rank in your mind compared to other great works of literature that you have read? Um, do you mean like great literature, like writ large or fantasy or? Take that question however you want to take it. No preamble. Just in, in other words, how good do you think it is? I mean, I think it's so good. I think this is something that should be should be incorporated into curriculum for kids and for uh, middle grade and young adults. I think this is something that everyone uh, should have the opportunity to read. Uh, for me, it has been such a joy to go back and read again because I'm now uh, studying medieval literature to a greater extent than I ever have been. And so I'm making these connections that Tolkien is asking me to make. And that has uh, greatly enriched the reading process for me. Um, I, you know, I, I've said this a lot on the podcast. I'm a huge, huge Harry Potter fan. Um, and that for me was the most formative. It, it was the most formative literary experience of my life. Uh, you know, not just fantasy, but uh, literature at all. It, like I am who I am because of Harry Potter, but Lord of the Rings falls just short of that because I read it a little bit later, you know? So, um, these are these are story worlds that I'll carry with myself for my entire life because they helped me figure out what kind of moral person I was. They helped define my interests. They helped me um, shape my worldview. Uh, they helped me shape a, a view of politics and of leadership and of uh, character. So that's what I'll say. Yeah. What about you? I read Lord of the Rings twice in high school and then post high school, I've picked up a book here or there and read a few pages here and there. So this would be the third time that I've actually sat and reread the whole thing from start to finish and not just picked out pieces I wanted to read. And I find that as I thought when I was young, it's the greatest piece of literature known to me. Wow. Yeah. And there there may be greater literature out there, but it's not known to me. I haven't read it. So I don't say that in any way to disparage other works but there is nothing quite like Tolkien for me. And when I read Tolkien when I was young, and I mean really young, like high school young, 
compared to reading it now, so many years later, I tried my very best to purge my young self from the rereading. I didn't want to pull that I was a Tolkien fan, that I've seen the movies so many times, and I wanted to try my best to wipe the slate clean and just read it as an adult self, and I found it even more enjoyable. Yeah, me too. And I found that I, I got it better now than I ever had before because I'm a better reader, I am more educated, I have more experience. I've been doing a podcast with critical media analysis for the last... Oh, three years, three and a half years, yeah. three and a half years at this point. So I approach all media with a different sense of scrutiny than I had before. And I applied all of that to Lord of the Rings and every scene that I dismantled, every word that I picked apart, every meditation or reflection like a Gondorian or Shire Garden produced more fruit than I thought capable. Yeah, yeah. Um, over the next couple of weeks, I mean, it's, it's going to be weird to walk away from this. It has been so long a part of our, a uh, part of our podcast. I have a feeling I'm going to probably write a, a blog or two about some of the things that we didn't get to some comparisons I'd love to make. So watch out for those. Um, if you want us to come back to this universe and maybe do like six episodes on the Hobbit, if we're following the, uh, the Peter Jackson model, we would happily do so. Um, but we'd also love to know if there are other um, book series or just books out there that you think are rich in history, mythology, and philosophy that you would like us to cover or just think we should read. Uh, I know we've already gotten some suggestions, but uh, I would love to hear it. I'd love to hear from you in general. I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. Um, and I hope that you are, I don't know, I'm just saying stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh, want to thank everyone who um, entered our giveaway. I think it was a success. We might want to do another one. We just got to think of a cool idea. And until next one, stay inside and be kind. Be kind. <laughs>